When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Uplifting Impact Podcast. I'm Justin Ponder, Chief Information Officer with Uplifting Impact. Today, I'm super excited to be hosting you as we dive deeper into our journey to make the world more diverse, equitable, and inclusive. And today, we're very excited to be talking with Artel Smith. Artel is Principal and Managing Director of WatchWorks Management Consulting, LLC, an adjunct faculty at the Center for Professional and Executive Development of the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Business, where he facilitates classes for managers, leaders, and executives. He has held transformational projects across all aspects of HR work globally, including talent development, DEI, generalist services, HR operations, and employee contact centers, technology, recruiting, and offshoring, you name it, he's done it. Artel also specializes in commercial program management targeted at growing revenue, improving processes, and reducing cost. In addition to all that, Artel is also the author of three forthcoming books, including No Time to Waste, How Great Business Leaders Manage Negative and Positive Microbehaviors, and Engage, Coach, Develop, Building Strong Relationships that Drive Individual and Team Performance. Woo, you've done a lot. <laughs> Artel, welcome to the show. Thank you, Justin. I will do my best to deserve everything you just said. <laughs> so we'll, we'll start that test right away with a quick icebreaker. So you've got lots of books to your credit here. But if you had to write a book in a genre way beyond your expected comfort zone, now, we're not saying that you don't have any hidden talents and all that, but what people wouldn't expect, what kind of book would it be and why? Well, I, I have a couple of choices because I would definitely be uncomfortable with several different genre. Uh, but, <laughs> but my, you know, based on what I'm doing right now, I would say I would be terrible at any kind of romance novel <laughs> because I have zero ability to write dialogue that would be appropriate cool. for a romance novel. I, I can think of a story, but there's no way I could write the dialogue. So I would say that would be the most uncomfortable. I'd have to sneak a little bit of science fiction into it, or I don't know, a little bit of management something, you know, <laughs> to make it feel more like me. But I would say that would be it for sure. Well, now you mentioned sci-fi. What is it that so you find comfort in the dialogue of sci-fi? Yeah, I, I think the reason is this, that uh, you can pick your time and space and place for a science fiction story. And so I'm in about halfway, almost well, two-thirds of the way through of writing my first science fiction book. And while the first couple of chapters were like any author, right? You wondered whether or not you could get to anything more than the first couple of chapters. But I, I feel uh, very comfortable in that space. And I think it's because both of my parents were scientists. And mm. so uh, not only did I enjoy reading science fiction uh, when I was growing up and throughout my life, but I had two really good examples of scientists who were 
into structured science fiction in the sense of it's got to be based on something that makes sense. Um, I'm not really good at the wand and wizard version of, uh, of science fiction. So I'm much better when I can ground it in the actual science. Ah, so speaking of grounded in the actual science, th- speaking of dialogue focused in on the real world, I think that segues nicely to your <laughs> book, No Time to Waste, focusing on micro behaviors and leveraging things that help us become better leaders. And I imagine dialogue has a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. So what inspired you to write this book? Yeah, I, I would say uh, probably two things. Thing number one is that in my years in the classroom at uh, multiple different uh, multinational companies, what I have seen managers and leaders always struggle with is the ability to make small changes that over a period of time uh, create a mindset shift. Frequently, leaders and managers want to run all the way to the mindset and try to reverse engineer into the behaviors. I don't I have not found that to be a a very successful strategy personally. So that's thing number one is I've seen it happen so many times. I feel like um, starting with micro behaviors and and then stacking them up to create mindset change is the first and foremost reason. The, The second reason is that micro behaviors are very connected to diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And so uh, whether it's a very positive microbehavior, a great short dialogue that can have a great and positive impact, or it's a short negative interaction in the DEI space, both sides, be, whether it's positive or negative, both sides have an, can have an extreme impact on the individual, especially from a non-dominant group. So that was my second reason. I didn't want it to be the the thrust of the book, but it was important that it be addressed along the way. And I have to take a sidebar with our listeners here. The book actually changed and challenged me a lot. I'm a very structural thinker and I like to kind of, like you said, focus on not even the mindsets. I think maybe I jump beyond that to a fault of my own and focus on the systems. And I think that comes a lot from my background in cultural and social theory and being very suspicious and worried about focusing so much on individual behavior that the organizations end up scapegoating the individuals like, well, why haven't you done this? Why haven't you done this? So I'd like to plug the book about it really challenged the way that I think and I see the how much it resonates with people. How has it been in your experience seeing people who might be skeptical about the statistics, the facts, the figures, and even the mindset change when you talk about these kind of micro behaviors, how does that impact those audiences? It's a, it's a very thoughtful question with, I think, a slightly complex response. It is this, that I have, very diffi- I have found it to be difficult to win the hearts and minds of individuals when I start too high. And so um, if, I'm, if I start with, for example, organizational systems and processes, I find a lot of a tendency for leaders and managers and others, executives, um, to think about the system that they manage as being far too complex to interfere with, that it takes mm. a lot of effort and investment and time and energy and so forth. And so when, when I shrink it down to a one-on-one or manager-on-team interaction, irrespective of the systems that are in place, each person, each individual leader is able to make a difference immediately. 
And so I, I, I try to sidestep this problem of organizational dynamics as I go through the book. Uh, as I as I wrote the book, I tried to sidestep it because I think that is an art unto itself. Mm. And and if you don't have individuals who are well intentioned, who are who are managing their micro behaviors, there is no hope in creating a systemic change because many of the, those individuals need to do this, need to do both. Right? They have to do the behavior and they have to manage a system. And I think in our work with diversity, equity, inclusion, oftentimes people say, okay, we want to come in with the large programs <laughs> and yeah. they expect that the greatest opposition will be along the lines of maybe political or philosophical outright opposition. But what we find is quite often more passive resistance in the form of this sounds hard. <laughs> complete mentorship program overhaul like yes that sounds hard so what are some of the micro behaviors that you feel gain the most traction where people all of a sudden you see the light bulb turn on whether it's diversity equity inclusion or just being a better leader what are some of the best of hits of micro behaviors that have the most impact but also tend to resonate the most with the audiences that you work with yeah i am um, my grandmother uh, my mother's mother uh, always said to her grandchildren, "You know, you should think before you speak." And uh, and usually she offered that counsel after I'd said something stupid, and, <laughs> right? as opposed to remember to think before you speak. It was like, okay, there was an example. And <laughs> well, my grandmother used to say, "I'm going to give you a second to think about what you just said." But you just said <laughs> completely right, and 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 I feel that the part of at least one light bulb goes off when individuals realize that they are thoroughly in control of what their mouth is going to say. <laughs> Nobody's, you know, prodding them in the cheek with an electrical impulse that makes their jaw move and their tongue move. They mm -hmm. do that through mind over body action. And once they realize that very simple thing and you give them permission to stop and reflect before speaking, it to me, that's the first step along the path of wisdom to microbehaviors. And what about the other end? What, what would you recommend for either leaders who are watching behavior? Let's focus just right now on just things that have been said, which is a behavior right. that someone on my team says something, either a microaggression, some sort of exclusionary behavior, says something to another team member. Or if I'm a team member, an individual contributor, and one of my leaders, this is one of the number one questions we get quite often is in the area of bystander intervention. So you talk about micro behaviors that help us think before we speak. But what might be some micro behaviors that can help us help others think after they have misspoken? If I'm the manager in the, in the room and I overhear something that's said wrong, or uh, I, I would say it's actually relatively easy, which is you must intervene quickly. That's the micro behavior. Mm. Um, you can't let the words um, hang in the air unaddressed. If, if I am the manager and I have said something that I would like to have recalled, right, or I would have liked to have thought before I said it, the, the immediate, my, my view of this is that immediate intervention, self-intervention is also required. So mm -hmm. that, again, you can't, I as a manager can't let my ill-timed, ill-formed comments linger 
in an environment without addressing him right away. Now, if I am truly ignorant of what I just did, you know, hopefully there is someone there who heard it who can help me along that path of quick intervention. Hmm. But, but I think most people recognize when they've said something a little, you know, as I said, ill-timed, ill-formed, most people recognize it and then they're embarrassed. And, you know, if there's an emotional opportunity here it is to say, your embarrassment is nothing compared to the discomfort you just created. Get mm. over your embarrassment and address the discomfort. And beyond speech, beyond what we say, what are some other micro behaviors that you feel are most impactful for team dynamics and improving them? Yeah, it, th- this is um, t- to me, you know, if there's a core of what I'm hoping for with micro behaviors, it is that managers will begin to practice a combination of different things, right? But let me, I'll just hit on two of them. Number one is uh, the concept of appreciative inquiry which is rather than approach the world and your individuals on your team and your team from a deficiency perspective, right? Here's a problem. We need to fix it together. Let's come up with the right answers to do it, right? Instead, start your interactions with all of the things that are going well and that you can leverage positively to improve even more as time goes on. So I think appreciative inquiry is one of those techniques that helps managers do that. Um, And it feels very different when you're a team member and you hear, we have a problem and I'm really feeling like we're going to fail unless we fixed it, versus we have solved this kind of problem 12 times in the last six months. I'm confident that the same talents that solved those other six problems are going to be able to manage this very effectively. And thank you for being here to do that. Feels very different, right? Absolutely. And one of the problems that we interact with quite often is the old, like the traditional model of, I only intervene when there is a problem. The (laughs) assumption that no news is good news. So, and something when we think about age demographic shifts is we're poised to see the biggest shift in age demographics in the United States workforce the world has ever seen. Ever, yeah, right. And it's going to completely skip Generation X (laughs) altogether. And it's going to be probably 75% millennials within the next couple of years. And with it, a drastic different approach to what work looks like, what the purpose of work is, but also what communication is. I think older than 40 in the United States, you're statistically more likely to assume no news is good news. If my boss never says anything to me, that means I'm doing fine. Whereas younger than that, statistically much more likely for more feedback and to kind of be prefaced with Tell me also what's going well. How do you feel that aligns with appreciative inquiry where it seems like, hey, I appreciate the things that have gone on. And it, I, I hear you saying, this is what we've done well. How can we do weller? <laughs> As opposed to we messed up. How do we repair it? How right. does that reconcile with appreciative right. inquiry? Yeah. So um, f- first off, let's let's put a very foundational concept in place is that whether you're over 40 or under 40, depending on what generation you are. I have rarely met anyone who did not like sincere compliments, mm-hmm. S- sincere yes. recognition, right, of whatever it, might, whatever it might be. And so my sense of it is that, yes, it is true that millennials and Gen Y are both in need, are all in need of, of the more active micro behaviors that put the manager on a stage 
where they are complementing, encouraging, supporting, recognizing, rewarding, which is the backbone to appreciative inquiry. Um, and I think I think the second concept, which I was going to talk about, is generativity. And generativity is the uh, willingness and ability of those from an older generation to support and help a younger generation through the challenges of life in a way that's comfortable for them. Not about when I was young, you know, I went to school uphill both ways in snow, you know, pulling a <laughs> sleigh, right? That right. that's not that's not generativity. What generativity is is let's talk about the situation as you're experiencing it right now. Apply my appreciative inquiry. And, and get the individual of a younger generation to understand that you are in it to help them win it, not in it so you win it. Mm-hmm. And that's a subtle but meaningful distinction. Yeah, you're not there policing. You're there not coaching there and cheerleading and supporting as opposed to I just knock on the door when something is wrong. And I think this resonates well, this appreciative inquiry and generativity. Like I think oftentimes we hear the statistics about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and we gloss over some of the tough ones, is that at the beginning, groups don't like it. They don't like diverse settings. It makes them feel uncomfortable. It makes them feel very uncomfortable, very cautious. And it actually causes all the great things that we celebrate about DEI. It causes, oh, greater innovation, greater productivity, greater decision-making. Yes, if... And I think one of these key things is appreciative inquiry, is that if leaders know how to ask questions, how to draw people out, because there's a very strong impulse to just conform, that bandwagon bias of, oh, no, I'm not going to give my great ideas. So how do you get people who are from underrepresented groups, from groups socialized not to share their unpopular ideas, or just plain old introverts who are quiet and maybe really reluctant to participate in this appreciative inquiry, what are some micro behaviors that leaders or just plain old individuals can do to kind of draw out those folks in ways that are generative and on their terms and not like Justin might tend to do point of question. What do you think? Don't be embarrassed. Pretend there's not 500 people in the room. Just answer the question. <laughs> It'll be just fine. Yeah. I, I would, by the way, if whatever I say next is brilliant, I want to pre uh, copyright it so that I can use it okay. later. If it's not brilliant, <laughs> if it's not brilliant, you can do whatever you want. Um, Sounds good. <laughs> so, so that's my caveat, but uh, you know, here, here's what I would say. Individuals on a team, all deserve a comfortable one-on-one relationship with his or her manager. And that one-on-one relationship is the beginning of positive microbehaviors and generativity in action. And so if I am in a group that's primarily of my own making, meaning my teams or my adjacent teams, I hope, and I would recommend certainly that managers have spent time with the individuals to understand where there might be some discomfort Again, not with the question of, I know you're going to be uncomfortable. It's with the question of, here are all the great things that you bring to the party. I'm here as your manager to help even uh, help you grow more in the direction you want to grow. But there might be some things that you feel are keeping you back. Let's talk about that. You know, what is, what is it that might be difficult for you to do? And you'll pick up those clues. And when you have enough clues and you're in front of an audience, you can create a comfort that totally transcends individual discomfort in the way that you approach the interaction. Mm-hmm. One, of, one of the classes I teach is a course that's called uh, 
a leading with purpose. And in the leading with purpose class, it, it, it's a very, it's actually for me unusual. It's a very rigorous process that they have to go through and they fill out a workbook and so forth. And what I found in the first couple of times of teaching it, that the more I kept them in, in large groups, the less I got. When I put them in groups of four or five, I got a little bit more, but not a lot. When I put them in one-on-one, it was like the floodgates opened. Like one-on-one with you or one-on-one with each other? With each other. One-on-one with Ah. each other, the floodgates opened. Because then Mm. the true person, it was easier for the true person to come out and ask for camaraderie with the one other person they were with. And they spend about, of of a six-hour instructional day, they probably spend three hours in this one-on-one dialogue. And so as a result of that, a lot of the barriers come down and they're willing to talk about some very difficult things, even in the large group. Because I asked Mm. them in the small group, in the one-on-one groups, I asked them to think about how they would like to report out, find words that you're comfortable with saying out loud in front of others, and let's do that when the time comes. Yeah, because it's like you're building up that individual relationship. And then even though they might be addressing a large group, they're really in their mind thinking, I'm just talking to this one person that I talked to before, or I'm just talking to this leader. And I can immediately hear people say, that sounds really hard. It sounds like it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of kind of like behind the scenes uh, architecture. Yeah. Yeah. How do you encourage people to stick with that like leaders to stick with that kind of design, even when it's so much easier to just have a coliseum full of gladiators, the loudest person who talks the longest wins. How do you, what are some things for like self-management that will keep Justin in check, even when he just wants to say, what about you? What about you? What about you? (laughs) Right. So Goldman's emotional intelligence uh, wheel, if you remember, has this one component called self-regulation. So I would say first, it's it's self-regulation. The the self-regulation goes, it really is this pre-calibration notion Mm -hmm. that that you had uh, wonderfully added into the narrative within the book when you and I talked uh, in the early drafts of it. The pre-calibration notion to me is what's required in order to avoid that incredibly uncomfortable and very unproductive gladiators in the Colosseum letting Caesar talk. If there's any way to create misunderstandings efficiently, it's that way. Right? <laughs> yes. Definitely that way. So so now you asked the question though that I think is is really challenging for individuals. And it goes back to what I said earlier, which is a series of well-tuned micro behaviors done over a long period of time do create a mindset change. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's, it's trying to give yourself the space to speak in a micro behavioral positive way so that over time your, your brain begins to change. My, uh, my older sister and I use this example in the book, my older sister suffered from a stroke several years ago. And um, one of the things that really was interrupted in the wiring of her head was her ability to play complex piano pieces. It, It was almost immediate. She had difficulty and things that she had played for many years over a long period of time. And when I talked to her, I said, well, so how are you dealing with this? And this, this goes directly to 
this micro behavior that leads to the mindset change. She had to go way back in her in her previous skill level and start with those small things on the piano that she could repeat and master time and time and time again. And eventually she created new pathways in her mind that permitted her to get get to ultimately to reconstruct the more complex piano pieces that she played. It's to me, it's the same behavior. It's that if you know you're headed in the right direction, you take, you, you know, I don't want to be flippant about it. It's you take mm-hmm. a cautious step, you take a second cautious step, that becomes that feels good. You take a thousand more of those steps. You rewire yourself so that instead of sitting in front of a team and starting off with, boy, are we in pro- in trouble this month? <laughs> right? It starts off totally differently. You know, we've been here before. We know what to do. You, 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 and you are all excellent at your work. You're, you know, craftsmen in your field. We're going to be able to handle this and and whatever the objective might be. Um, that again, that feels very different. And I think that's the way to do it. That's again, that was a long answer. I apologize. There was a couple of, I took a detour in a couple of places, but no, it's fantastic. Well then a follow-up question I have is those are really great steps for like the taking the proactive thing. And it's almost, I hear you talking about like almost like behavior modification that changes the mind, Mm -hmm. but how do we know which behaviors to change in the first place? Like if we are, I imagine quite a few of these yeah, yeah. exclusionary, toxic, uh, negative micro behaviors are so close to us that they're hard to recognize. And if we enact them, we probably surrounded ourselves with a whole lot of people we've trained not to call us on them. So how can we, the self-regulation, how can we develop the, the kind of prerequisite self-awareness to be aware of those opportunities yep. in the first place. Yep. If Dr. Daniel Goldman were listening in, he would go, well, that's an excellent question, right? Let me, refer, <laughs> let me refer you to page 325 in my, in my <laughs> book on what it is you need to do. And, and, and I, I tend to take a leaf out of his, or page out of his book, a couple of pages, when it comes to that particular uh, question and problem that you posed. So, so the, 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 the truth is that individuals become aware of correct behavior when uh, and what what good behavior looks like which sounds like i'm talking like a parent to a child it's not my intention but there is good behavior in the workplace when it comes to things related to inclusion and so how does someone know does anyone know innately intuitively if they've only had interaction with one particular particular cultural archetype in their entire living life no they don't in fact, what, what usually is required, and my experience has been, when I put it in terms of what are the expectations that you as a man, what, what, are, what are the expectations that an organization has of you as a manager or as a leader? And if inclusion is an expectation, if pre-calibration to microbehaviors is an expectation, so you don't put your foot in your mouth on a regular basis, mm-hmm. right, then 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 you open the door for teaching things from a competency perspective. And a, and a competency perspective, just like we learn good communication skills uh, or facilitating in a classroom or change management skills, we learn it because somebody put it in terms of a competency. This is what good looks like. This is what less good. This is what terrible looks like, right? Put it in a competency framework 
And then you have to help someone make the mindset shift to recognize this isn't just a good professional skill. This is a life skill that is required for you to be successful in your organization. Well, it sounds like a whole lot of skills that will make us successful in their organizations, on our teams, and in our lives as well. So thank you very much, Artel Smith, for all these great ideas. So if people want to learn more and get in contact with you, how can they do so? Absolutely. So, and, and I would love to hear from anyone who has questions, commentary, or feedback of whatever kind uh, about what you've heard today. So uh, the best way to get in touch with me would be on LinkedIn. Uh, Artel Smith is my profile name. Uh, very easy to, to look me up and send me an email. My email address is artelsmith at outlook.com. Another great way to get in touch with me. Um, and I, as I said, I'm, I'm very desirous of receiving feedback and coaching. If there's anything here that you feel like I've underserved, please, by all means, let me hear about that too. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much again, Artel, for this great time. Well, I I appreciate the time being here. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about the book, which I put some time and effort into. And uh, thank you, Justin, and your lovely wife, Deanna, uh, for (laughs) feeling good enough about the book to write the foreword to it, which I think is the reason why any any book, (laughs) why it's sold at all, is pretty much because you guys did the foreword. But thank you so much and, and really appreciate the time we spent here today. And thank you to all of you listening in. We're so glad that you tuned into to this week's episode of the Uplifting Impact Podcast. We need more people like you to help us uplift the impact. In order to do so, please be sure to share this episode, comment on it by going to our website at upliftingimpact.com or provide your thoughts directly to us through LinkedIn at Uplifting Impact, Justin Ponder, and Deanna Singh. Until next week, keep uplifting the impact. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.